Today on Ag News Daily. They don't get to bell alfalfa hay in the middle of the day whenever everybody else is at work. They bell, they bell it in the middle of the night when everybody else is asleep. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday, December 18th. I'm Mike Pearson for today's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Ms. Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you doing today? Mike, I tell you what, I am stuffed to the gills today. We just had our Iowa PBS holiday potluck, and I ate a lot of good foods, and it's that time of year when people are stuffing up on good foods. Darn right. I tell you what, I just had a delicious lunch with the uh, owner of a... Uh, of- of the company here, Matt Zayner, we had some Italian beef sandwiches, mm-hmm. Delaney. I love a good Italian beef, and today was not a disappointment. I am also stuffed up completely full of seasoned beef, and I'm, I couldn't be happier about it. Yes, so am I. And actually, speaking of the holidays, we've got Christmas next week, and this is just a quick little PSA. We will not be doing the podcast at all next week. We're going to take off all of next week for Christmas to spend it with our families and loved ones and just getting recuperated for another year of podcasting. Perfect. Perfect. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, yeah, so am I. So, Delaney, what is the news you're watching today? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of news today going on in Washington, D.C., dealing with the impeachment hearings, and I'm not going to spend too long chatting about that, but it does sound like today there could be a vote on an impeachment there uh the house is holding a historic day of debate today and is expected to end the day with votes on whether or not to impeach president trump so they really have not been spending a ton of time doing the things that congress you know should be or could be doing during this time of year instead but we did see the house ways and means committee meet on tuesday and voted on a couple of different important pieces that could impact agriculture the first of which mike is the vote for the USMCA agreement. We saw the House Ways and Means Committee pass it with flying colors on Tuesday, and they should have a final vote here for the full House on Thursday. The other piece of news that the House Ways and Means Committee voted on Tuesday was to support the Trump administration's decision to try and force reform at the World Trade Organization. As I believe I mentioned on the podcast before, we do not have, or the current appellate court judges at the WTO level are, I believe, I guess for lack of better terms, their sentences are ending, and so the U.S. has been really pushing for some reform there, and appealers that the Congress, or our Congress, is supporting President Trump's decision to play a little bit of hardball in that aspect as well. All right. Well, we will see if that hardball pays off. We sure will. But, uh, yeah. So, like we've said, we talked about this on the podcast, I think, yesterday, whether or not USMCA was a done deal. So we haven't seen the House officially vote on it yet. So it's not really a done deal yet, unfortunately, Mike. Right. And it seems like with this impeachment in the news, this is going to drive headlines for, I would imagine, at least the rest of this week. And then, of course, we've got Christmas and New Year's break. You know, I think it comes back to that schedule that was uh, discussed about two weeks ago where we're not going to see a vote on this by the full House until at least after the first of the year. Right. We could by chance see it tomorrow happen, but yeah, I think uh, most of their time is going to be taken up here with the impeachment hearing. So I guess with that, too, if they vote to impeach President Trump today, the Senate still has to vote on it, obviously, as well. But I don't know what the next steps are from there. 
um, then it, the president signs it. Then it goes into effect after X number of days. I forget the, the time delay, but yeah, then we're, we're rocking and rolling because Mexico and Canada have already no, signed no, no. off. I said the impeachment. Oh, right. Yeah, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, House will vote. They'll impeach. It'll go to the Senate. They won't, uh, you know, evict right. Trump from the office. And, you know, it'll be a it'll be a big old nothing thing. It's just really frustrating that they're wasting so much time and effort on this when obviously it's not going to yeah. go anywhere. Well, but, you know, their argument is, you know, they believe President Trump has violated the Constitution. And, right. you know, you got to impeach if that's what you believe. That's what happened with uh, President Clinton back in uh, 1999. So, you know. That's what we're doing now. So, yeah, it is what it is. It's politics. It is. Everybody's gearing up for the 2020 election season. That is true, Mike. That is true. And we've got news that might not endear Trump to the American corn grower for the 2020 election season. Of course, back in October, the EPA released their plan to attempt to reincorporate some of the gallons from the renewable uh, fuel um, uh, uh, Renewable fuel thing. Renewable fuel association. No, the the gallons from Renewable the RFS. Renewable fuel standards. Thank you. I could not think of the S, <laughs> but you're right. The standard. Um, and uh, and of course, the farmers were not thrilled with it. They're going to do that three-year rolling average of gallons that have been waived in those small refinery exemptions. Uh, the corn growers lobby was saying, hey, you know, that's not accurate. We need to at least get this back up to 15 billion gallons. EPA said, nah, you know, we'll think about it. We'll open it up for comments. Well, it was announced earlier today by folks in the Trump administration that, uh, in fact, it was economic advisor Larry Kudlow, who was talking to the Iowa Corn Growers Association um, uh, yesterday, rather, that the administration is going to proceed, final decision, with the EPA's October proposal. So we are going to be doing that three-year rolling average of waived gallons. And um, basically, this this does not have, uh, have corn growers thrilled, does not have the RFA thrilled, does not have the biofuels community thrilled, because we're not going to see an immediate resumption of those gallons that were waived here over the past several years. The other concern is that this leaves uh, kind of the ball in the EPA's court for waiving these gallons again next year. It does nothing to change the way that these small refinery exemptions are granted. So the concern is we could continue to see this administration granting inordinate amount of waivers in a bid to keep the oil lobby happy. So it's, uh, you know, farmers are kind of coming out on the, the bad end of this deal. Kind of sounds like they just slapped a Band-Aid on it, to be honest with you. Yeah, and uh, not even a great Band-Aid. Right. Yeah, unfortunately. So so that's the story there on the biofuels. Uh, no additional changes are expected. We'll just have to wait till next year to see exactly what the EPA does put out for their uh, volume requirements, and then again, how many exemptions they end up issuing. Okay. Well, the House is uh, impe- doing their impeachment debate today, but the Senate is still meeting, and they are the last to sign off on the 2020 fiscal spending bills before it heads to President Trump's desk by the end of the week for his signature. I thought this was interesting, but there's basically two spending bills plus explanatory statements, and they total more than 3,800 pages. Ooh, just a, just a little text. bit of reading. Yeah, you could get right on that. You can fill us in on that, Mike. Absolutely, I will do that. I will uh, I'll keep my evenings It'll busy your, for, you know, a, a yeah. day or two. It'll be your holiday light reading. Absolutely. That's what I need to be doing. Yeah. Uh, well, we've got some news on the economy. Chicago Federal Reserve Bank President Charles 
Evans was out and about today doing some talking, and he said that the U.S. economy is, quote, doing remarkably well. And then he mentioned we do have a vibrant labor market and a strong consumer, but his concern is that inflation remains worryingly, worrisomely low, or his exact words. And uh, he thinks we are going to see additional rate cuts going forward, at least one in 2020 and one in 2021, with the idea of helping to boost that inflation rate back up to the Fed's 2% target. Um, Evans has voted for all of the Fed rate cuts this year, and he has also supported the decision to uh, to leave interest rates where they are. Uh, as of right now, he thinks we're okay at one and a half to one point seven five percent. But looking ahead to twenty twenty, he is expected to be pushing for more rate cuts, which is kind of right in line with what the market is anticipating going forward. Lane, so we might see another break on interest rates as we look ahead to the future. And it sounds like then we're maybe free and clear as for right now with heading into a recession about not heading into a recession i should say we say that again sounds like we're kind of in the free and clear then not going to head into a recession well you never know but right as of right now things look strong all right well looking ahead again to 2020 it's hard to believe it's like 12 days, 13 days away until we start the new year. But one change we could see after the new year, we will see after the new year, is farm worker wages for the H-2A visa program. The Labor Department has said that they will rise 6% nationally next year to an average of $13.99 an hour. And I also wanted to throw in there, Mike, I don't know if you've seen this video circulating on Facebook or anywhere yet, but... I saw this the other day. It was basically like a, it's kind of like a pack, like an ad that they would air for a political candidate. But this time it's talking about the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, the Mm -hmm. new labor bill that's being brought up in Congress, you know, to change stuff. And it bashes agriculture so hard. I was so disgusted after I watched it. I'd be interested to hear our listeners thoughts on this video as well. Really? And and who put it out? What's I'm gonna, what's the background on it? Yeah, let me, let me I'm pulling it up on my phone right now so I can tell you that I don't know the group that sponsored it, but you watch it and you just think, what the heck did I just watch? It's the hmm. video on Facebook is called Help Us Stop Agriculture Amnesty. Oh. And it's very Yeah, it's just, you have to watch it. It's put out by the FAIR organization, F-A-I-R. I'd be really curious, Mm. listeners, go check it out. It's hard, it was hard for me to watch. I'll just put it that way. And I don't usually get, you know, into the political stuff like this, but it just really made me upset to watch it. Interesting. All right, well, we'll have to check it out. Um, let's see. We have just, I've got one other quick piece of news jumping over across the Pacific, looking at Southeast Asia. We continue to hear news stories of the spread of African swine fever. This time it is not in China. This is in Indonesia, which has, uh, of course, reported African swine fever, uh, reported about two months ago. They do say that as of now, nearly 30,000 pigs have died from African swine fever in just the North Sumatra province as of December 15th. This is because, of course, millions of dollars in economic losses. Uh, Officials are trying to quarantine the areas effective. They have declared an outbreak in the country, and they're saying it is really only contained in some parts. Um, It's tough to get this thing wrapped up. Uh, Basically, 16 areas in North Sumatra have been uh, designated 
emergency areas with the outbreak of African swine fever, and meat and meat products aren't allowed to leave that area. But, uh, you know, you never know what's actually going to stop this thing. I actually want to correct one thing that you mentioned there. You said it was two months ago that they got their first case, and that may be true, but they did not actually confirm their first case until just this past week on December 12th is when the Indonesian Minister of Agriculture announced or confirmed that they actually had African swine fever in that country. I think it's also worth pointing out too, Mike, the culture and nationality and ethnicities of the people in Indonesia, a lot of them are Hindu and a lot of them are Muslim, and about 80% of the people living in that area identify as Hindu and consume pork as their main protein source as well. Mm, okay, so could have major ramifications as the yes. food prices begin to climb in Indonesia. Absolutely, and it'll be interesting too. Indonesia is one of the you know fastest growing populations, competing really largely with China. So it'll be interesting to see how those two countries continue to compete for pork supply, since so much of their populations each rely on that as a staple part of their diet. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll have to stay tuned. This this outbreak is not done, folks. African swine fever, even if China is getting under control, it is going to continue to ravage herds across Southeast Asia and hopefully not here in the U.S. Hopefully not. Do you have any other news for us today, Delaney? I think I'm all out of news, Mike. Why don't you kick it off to our commodity markets? Let's do it, folks. We had a bit of a step back today. The market's completely understandable given the rally that has been happening since the U.S.-China trade deal was announced last week. Today, caught our breath. As we take a look at the corn market, the March corn contract was down three cents at 3.87 even. The May also dropped three to close at 3.93 and a half. Soybeans, the January contract down a quarter penny at 9.28 and a half. March down a quarter, finished at 9.40 and a half. Over the Chicago wheat pit, wheat was the big loser on the day. The March contract dropped eight cents, closed at 5.48 and a quarter. May down seven and a quarter to finish at 5.51 and three quarters. Over in livestock, we've got mixed trade in the cattle complex. December live cattle up two and a half cents at 122.25. February down 17 and a half, closed at 126.125. Feeder cattle weakness on the day. January contractor up 60 cents at 144.55. The March down 82 and a half to close at 144.90. Lean hogs mixed trade again. The February was up a nickel, closed at 69.90. April down 17 and a half cents to close at 77.22 and a half. Looking at Class 3 milk, December down 4 cents at 1934, and the January reversing the last two days of fairly spectacular declines was up 41 cents today, closed at 1737. Without further ado, Delaney, let's kick it off to today's interview. Well, for a final end-of-the-year type of conversation, we are chatting about equipment, equipment trends, and what's coming for the future today with Sean Skaggs, who's the president and CEO of Livingston Machinery Company. Sean, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are excited to have you, Sean. Let's talk a little bit about your background and how you got connected with Livingston Machinery Company. Sure. So uh, my family actually farms about uh, 25 miles north of our Chickasha dealership, which that's where our headquarters is at. And uh, so I grew up on the family farm raising cattle and wheat and hay. And uh, after college, I actually took a job with Cargill, moved down to East Texas and was a territory manager down there in East Texas in their animal nutrition division. 
and did that for about a year and had decided that I really wanted to try and move back a little bit closer to home. And about that same time, uh, Livingston Machinery called me because I knew several people that worked here and uh, they had a job opening uh, for somebody to help handle some walk-in sales and was wanted to know if I'd be interested. And so I came up here and spent about 30 minutes talking to Earl Livingston, who's the founder of the company. And uh, before I knew it, I was working here at Livingston Machinery Company in Chickasha, and I've been here ever since. That was, uh, gosh, it'll be 19 years ago next month that I've been with Livingston Machinery Company and just uh, kind of worked my way up from there, mostly by not being smart enough to say no to anything. Just took on every new challenge that they threw at me, and uh, before I knew it, I was I was here. So uh, that's how I got, uh, got hooked up with Livingston Machinery Company and uh, been re- really blessed to work here. Uh, because we've got such a great group of people here, uh, that's that's the thing that uh, that definitely keeps me here is the group of people that we have and being able to work with producers and and that kind of p- person as well as the kind of people that we have here in the dealership. Well, Sean, tell us then a little bit about the dealership, Livingston Machinery. I think it's that you have an interesting origin story. Well, we do. We're we're a little bit different. So the the way that the the company actually started was it was originally a company called Chickasha Tractor, and Earl and Sharon Livingston decided to uh, go out on their own and put in their own dealership. Earl was the sales manager there at Chickasha Tractor at the time, so he put in his own dealership. Uh, did that for about a year, just uh, jockeying some used equipment, and uh, before he knew it, he, he got a hold of the Heston contract. And a couple years after that, then he was able to go ahead and buy out Chickasha Tractor, and it just kind of grew from there. Uh, you know, we primarily started out in the commercial hay business. Uh, big square balers was kind of the catalyst for our dealership to grow and take off. And uh, but we were, or Earl was willing to, you know, take on the the inventory and the parts for the big square baler business where a lot of dealers weren't in the really early days. And so that helped him to grow his business a lot. And then uh, at once we got to the point where we had uh, three stores. Uh, Earl decided that he wanted to sell the business into an ESOP, which is something that most people don't know anything about. It actually stands for Employee Stock Option Plan. So what it basically boils down to is in 2009, he sold the dealership to the ESOP Trust. And so that makes us actually a 100% employee-owned dealership. And so since 2009, so for 10 years now, uh, we have been 100% employee-owned here at Livingston Machinery Company, which creates a you know obviously a different kind of culture and a different kind of environment. It's really helped to stimulate a lot of growth for us. You know, everybody that you deal with here at Livingston Machinery Company is technically owner. And so, you know, you get to deal with the owner no matter what you're doing and but it also gives our people some incentive to take real ownership in what they do. And I think that's really helpful to us and to all of our customers. Well that is really cool. So Livingston, employee owned, you've got that buy in from all of your employees from the customer's perspective. What sets Livingston machinery apart today? What keeps you guys busy out there on the floor? Well, there's a couple different things that play into that. One really is the ESOP because the thing that the ESOP does for us is like I said earlier, it helps all of our employees to take ownership in what they do. But the other thing it does is it creates basically a perpetual uh, a plan for going into the future. You know, there, there's no reason that we would have to do anything else. You don't have to worry about who's going to be, you know, taking over the dealership because uh, we have the ESOP plan in place. And so that creates this p- perpetual line uh, of, of being able to keep the business open. 
And then the other thing that, that really sets us apart, the thing that really helped us to grow the business, especially when we started out in commercial hay, is our commitment to 24-7 parts and service. So we have uh, parts and service people who are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And whenever you're in the commercial hay business here in the southwest part of the United States, you know, that is really a crucial thing because they don't get to bail alfalfa hay in the middle of the day whenever everybody else is at work. They bail, they bail it in the middle of the night when everybody else is asleep because that's the only window that we have where we've got the right moisture level to be able to bail that hay without knocking all the leaves off of it. And so uh, that, that commitment to 24-7 parts and service is what really helped our business to grow, and it's what set us apart and, and uh, you know, made us you know, one of the largest ag co-dealers in North America. Yeah, and Sean, I guess that's a good point, too. Uh, we have a lot of listeners that are from the Midwest, Upper Plains area, so if you're part of the U.S. down there in Texas and Oklahoma, is a lot different than the corn and soybean traditional row crops that we're dealing with up here in the Midwest. Tell us about you, you said they're, they've got a lot of hay acres, but what else is going on that's different or makes their equipment needs different than maybe some of our listeners up here in Iowa and Missouri and Nebraska and some of those states? Sure. So there's actually there's a lot that we have in common, and there's a lot that does make us a little bit different. One of the things we have in common is over in the Texas Panhandle uh, area that we serve, they're still growing a lot of corn. They're growing some soybeans there and, and some beans here in Oklahoma as well. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest differences is our – window that we're able to grow crops whenever we get started and whenever we get finished. Um, you know, we tend to run a lot of hours on equipment down here simply because, you know, the guys down in South Texas, they'll get started even earlier than we do. But even in, you know, we serve a lot of customers in Central Texas and all the way up through Oklahoma and through the Texas Panhandle. You know, they're going to get started really in late March, early April, as far as being able to really get to work on all the different crops that we have down here. We've also got a lot of cotton. That's one of the things that makes us different. But we start really early and we'll end pretty late, depending on when the, the last freeze comes in, or the first freeze comes in, excuse me. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of times whenever we're still bailing hay in late November and sometimes even into December, and we've got customers that are actually still bailing hay right now, uh, even though we've had a freeze, but they've got some crops that they can still come in and bail. And so, We've got a really wide window to work in there, which means our, our equipment goes through a lot because it has to work some really long seasons. Um, but, yeah, the other thing that I touched on there was the, the cotton. And so we've got a tremendous amount of cotton down here in southwest Oklahoma and then also in the Texas Panhandle and on down into southwest Texas. Uh, you've got a really big cotton region there, and that's something that a lot of people really aren't familiar with. Uh, because cotton is a very different crop, but, you know, it's not being grown for grain. It's being grown for uh, I don't even know what the, what you'd call it exactly, but basically to make clothes. And so uh, that's a different kind of crop, and it, it takes a, a very specific window to make things go right. They've got to have water at just the right times. They've got to have heat at just the right times, and they've got to have just the right amount of heat at those times. And so it's a very finicky crop, but uh, we've got a lot of producers down here that are extremely good at it. They've been doing it for you know, 100 years down here in this area. So uh, those are a few of the things that make things a little bit different down here in the Southwest. When you look out to the future, what has you fired up? How are, how are things shaping up in the Southwest that, that Living Machinery is going to get to be a part of? Well, there's a lot uh, to look forward to in the future. There's a lot of innovation coming down the road. Uh, there's also a lot of changes that are going to be coming to our market, there's no doubt. Uh, 
you know, one of the things that we've seen is as uh, producers get more and more pressure put on them, we do see more consolidation, which I think we're seeing all over the United States right now, uh, of farms and also of dealerships. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, we've got all this technology that's coming at us. That's one of the biggest challenges that we've got, and it's also one of the biggest opportunities that we've all got. Because uh, with all this technology, there's a lot, there's a steep learning curve. And so that learning curve is tough, but at the same time, whenever you look at the amount of production that we've been able to gain just in the last 10 years through the use of that technology, it's just absolutely tremendous. Uh, it's one of the things that I think has, has already changed the face of agriculture and will continue to change the face of agriculture as we go in the next probably 20, 30, 40 years. Um, we're just seeing so much advancement so fast. You know, and like I said, that's a challenge. It's a challenge for dealers to be able to keep up with the technology. It's a challenge for the producers to be able to keep up with that technology. Uh, but there's such huge advantages whenever we're able to, to utilize that technology in the right way. Um, and so, you know, you've got everything coming at us now from, you know, the possibility of autonomous tractors soon. Um, you know, down here we thought it was just a pretty big advancement whenever we first started using the auto steer on everything for us. You know, we were a little bit slow, honestly, down in this region to, to jump on board that train. That's only been really for the last 10 years or so that we've utilized uh, auto steer in the way that it was utilized in a lot of other parts of the country. But uh, but it's it's coming fast now, and it's coming everywhere. We're in such a global market, and we're in a, a technology age where you can learn anything about, any, about anything uh, at any time via the Internet. And so I think that technology keeps spreading faster. It keeps advancing faster. So that's going to be a big challenge for us, but it's also, like I said, a huge opportunity for us to be able to increase our production and also to increase our efficiency out there on the farm, which becomes more and more important every day. Joe, with all or uh, Sean, with all that being said, I guess I have one, just one final question. When you look at the technology that's coming at us at such a rapid pace, you look at the changes in equipment and manufacturing and all of that stuff, do you think we're going to hit a point where growers are behind enough that we're just going to see a huge, I guess for a lack of a better word, sell-off of equipment and people needing to buy new equipment right now or all at once, or do you see it happening more in stages? Well, I think it happens more in stages, and so it happens different ways with different types of equipment, too. So I think you, it has to happen in stages to a certain degree just simply because, you know, with the pressures that our producers are under right now uh, for, you know, just with commodity prices and with cattle prices and everything else that's out there, um, with that kind of pressure, they're not able to just, you know, wholesale change out all their equipment right now today. You know, they've got to do it in stages. That's, what, that's all their finances are going to allow for the time being. In addition to that, you've got a lot of different ways that the technology is changing. Some of it is directly from the manufacturers, but you've also got a lot of aftermarket technology uh, companies out there that are able to do some things and add things on to, you know, you look at just, for example, what precision planning has been able to do with planters of every single color and the technology they're able to add by not, you know, completely changing out their planter, but by taking an old planter and updating it in a dozen different ways, they can basically make it, you know, the most technologically advanced planter out there. And it might have been built somewhere in the mid-80s. And so there's some opportunities to, to be able to increase their, their technology in that way and to become more advanced in that way. Um, and so you'll see, I think you'll see some of both. You know, eventually everybody's going to be moving to the, that newer equipment. But then the other challenge that comes along with that is what happens to all that older equipment? 
right? Who's there to buy that? Because that's the other thing that we've seen is with all the consolidation out there on the farm, there aren't as many mid-size and small farms out there as what there used to be. And not only that, but these larger farms, they want to use the biggest, most efficient equipment they can get. But that biggest, most efficient equipment might not be a great fit for that medium to small size farmer that's out there because it may be just be a bigger piece of equipment than what they can, you know, utilize in the right way. And so that's a challenge, too. And so that also helps to kind of slow down the pace of that change out of equipment. Um, but like I said, for the for the ones that are able to make those moves, there's some huge opportunities out there and especially in, in gains efficiency. And efficiency, uh, I think, is really the name of the game for the next, at least for the next four or five years until we see some significant changes in our commodity prices. Absolutely. I know a lot of growers are keeping their fingers crossed for significant changes in commodity prices. But in the meantime, Sean, if people want to touch base with you, get some more information, learn a little bit more in detail, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. So the best way to get in touch with me is uh, probably you can reach out to me via email at skaggs at livingstonmachinery.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, To be honest with you, I'm not very active on any other social platforms besides LinkedIn. I like that that LinkedIn platform seems to be a little bit more positive than a lot of the other ones out there. Um, And, you know, you can also reach us here at Livingston Machinery at any time at uh, 405-224-5056. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it, and and good luck keeping business going in the years ahead. All right. Thank you. Well, a big thank you there again to Sean. It's great to get some end-of-the-year perspectives, especially looking at the equipment sector. It's one we definitely enjoy talking about here on the podcast. Absolutely, Delaney. We talk about all sorts of things here on the podcast, and listeners can get access to all of our past episodes by visiting our website, agnewsdaily.com, or by interacting with us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 